real life superpowers whenever you've made money without having accomplished something that's in proportion with the money you've made when you look in the mirror not in your bank account but in the mirror deep inside you know that huh, you know i got lucky i made a bunch of money but it actually didn't work out and for your mental health and, and i'm talking from experience both personally and from people that i know um having a little less money but having truly achieved something having helped people grow having developed a product that people use having helped others advance in life that is what makes your mental health stronger and and no amount of bank account can make up for the difference between the two hey everyone Today we speak with international businessman Jack Vinkowski, general partner of US Venture Partners, also known as USVP. For those who somehow didn't hear of USVP, it's a very well-known Silicon Valley venture firm that's invested in more than 500 companies, including Box, Checkpoint, Mellanox, Espagon, Guidewire, the list goes on. We discuss his journey, perspective and experience in helping entrepreneurs execute their vision and grow into significant sustainable businesses. Check out the episode for some gems on what the top investors in the world are looking for in a startup, the passion that drives it all, and many other valuable insights. Real life superpowers. Superpowers. Jack, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. What we're trying to do um, is to conduct genuine conversations uh, with people that we identify as peak performers. And we do it because we want to help people tap into what we identify as uh, superpowers. So we believe that every, every person has a superpower and that in general, there's this um, sense that's increasing out there in social media and just in general in the entrepreneurial landscape where you know there's you keep hearing success stories and at the end of the day it's very difficult to sort of realize that the gap between those who are at the top of their game and are really succeeding uh, and and the rest is sometimes not that big and it's a matter of being in tune with yourself and you know doing and, and being the best version of yourself and that at the end of the day we're all dealing with you things that we need to overcome. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think one of the things that I believe in very strongly after a long career in business as an entrepreneur and investor is the power of karma. And not karma in some esoteric thinking, but karma in my mind is at this very moment two people are meeting somewhere that I don't even know they're meeting. And one of them brings up my name. And the other one adds something, right? I don't know this meeting is taking place. I might not even know those guys firsthand. But what are they going to say something positive about me or something negative about me will have an impact on what happens to me. As a consequence of that, one of them may give me a call and propose an investment to me. Or one of them may say to his buddy, oh, never do business with Jacques. He's a bad guy. Hopefully it's the first one. And the real value of what you do is in the amount of positive karma that you get 
And that is of much stronger and lasting impact than that one time, you know, Glozo Calculus article, right? People will forget that. But what they won't forget is I was on the board with Jacques for five years and we dealt with this situation and this situation, this situation, and every time he did the right thing. That they will never forget, right? And that's the true value of accomplishment in business is have you built value in terms of delivering a product that uh, customers benefit from? Have you helped people in your organization to grow and to learn things and to accomplish themselves? Have you helped them be financially successful? Have you helped a whole bunch of people in your organization to buy an apartment because the company was successful? But most importantly is, have you created this positive impact on the people around you, right? And, you know, one of the most important things that I learned in the last few years, I had the opportunity to be sitting uh, at lunch with um, a very, very famous person in Silicon Valley. And I brought in another very famous person that is a friend of mine, a colleague of mine to that lunch. And it was a retirement lunch. And those two guys knew each other for decades. And we had a whole discussion about what is legacy, right? And by and large, none of us will make in the history books. Probably Elon Musk will be in the history books, mostly for good things. Maybe Bill Gates will be in their history books. You know, Steve Jobs will be in their history books. But I won't be in their history books. And I will probably tell you that there's probably nobody living at the moment in Israel that I can think about will be in the world in history books. And probably none of them or close to none of them will be in the Israel history books. So what is legacy if you don't have a chance to make it to the history books? And that goes back to this notion that we were talking about a minute ago of karma and all that. The only legacy that you have a chance to have an impact on is the influence that you will have had on people and the way they behave and the way they act in business and in private lives. And in such, it turns out that one of those people at lunch was was a personal mentor of mine. And I related very much. I said, look, you know, there is a piece of you that lives in me because you taught me as a business person to behave in a certain way. And when I make decisions, I always think of you and what you would think of my decisions. And as a matter of fact, I'm using the way I was taught by this mentor when I mentor other people. And so there are people right now that are in the world, that are doing business, that are building things, they don't even know this guy, right? They don't even know he exists. But they've been influenced by my mentorship to behave in a certain way. And my mentorship is a result of his mentorship. And so that's the true legacy is there will be people in the next generation, the second generation, maybe the third generation, that you might not even know that they exist. And they don't know that you exist. But a piece of you lives in them. And I think that's the most beautiful legacy we can leave behind much more than that flash of the article that everybody's going to forget in the press, right? That's not legacy. Legacy is what I just said. And that you can absolutely have an impact on. And I recommend everybody to pay attention to that because 
when you're alone in your living room, having a glass of wine and thinking about what you've accomplished this week or this year or this decade, that is what you'll be thinking about and not whether or not you made the front page of some newspaper with an article over which you have very little power, whether it will be positive or negative, it will be whatever narrative will at that time be viewed as more interesting, causing most people to read it or to click through. You have no control over that. It could be one day it could be good, the next day it could be bad. And it doesn't really reflect on your accomplishment. Whereas your personal accomplishment, your ability to have mentored people, your ability to have influenced people, that never goes away. Like this is my theory on leadership today. The problem with leadership now is that everybody has, you know, in, in a Jewish way, a shofar or, or in other sense, like some kind of uh, extrapolation of noise. Meaning once upon a time, there is an elegance of, of having like a great idea and, and, and slowly but surely it would grow through community, community, word to mouth or telephone by telephone. And now that there's like an extrapolation of that, it's making leaders make solid decisions or even being a little bit aloof about deciding. Like a leader can say, okay, I'm going to decide. If I decide this, then all the other people are going to get mad. If I say that, everybody else is going to get mad. And they have approachability to their kids and influence them to have a lot of peer pressure. Now, you're correct, but the, but the thing is that um, it, it becomes like, is it worth it? Because you're influencing the capacity, but is it worth it that even who you influence can actually say um, it's not even worth fighting for and saying that your influence was good? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of truth to what you're saying and the immediacy of the transmission of, of the reflection that people make on the decision is very different, right? Today, you know, somebody makes a decision, the next day it's on the social post, that gets reposted, then it goes through the entire society that even cares about this. And by the way, a lot fewer people care about it than you think. Um, and, and that propagates very, very quickly. But I think that is a very short-term um, effect and the underlying longer effect continues to work because it has to do with human nature. Human nature hasn't changed, right? Um, social media and, and the way people um, talk about things and the speed at which um, news get propagated has changed, but human nature hasn't changed. Uh, human nature takes hundreds of years to change and it hasn't changed, yeah. or, or not much. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's even more important for people to really check in with their long-term internal compacts because so many of those things come and go, right? Like when I was a CEO and I sold my company in 2004, in the space that I was in, there was a really terrible article, terrible article. You know, it's like, you know, saying really bad things about my company and about me personally. What company was that? It was, you know, Comodrate Design Systems. It was a very long time ago and you probably never heard of it. Uh, but but um, it affected me terribly. And I called my PR agent, who was also a personal friend, and I said, how could they do this? And they're like, look, just let it go. You know, like a day from now, a week from now, nobody will even remember this article, right? 
and and here we are, you know, 17 years later, people don't even remember the name of the company, right? Let alone that there was once an article that I thought was bad. And so I remember because it affected me, but it didn't really affect me externally. And what does affect me externally is that deeper accomplishment that we talked about, which translates into karma. The people that were in my company that continue to be my friends. You know, many years ago, I had dinner with my VP of engineering last week, right? We've, we haven't worked together for 17 years. We still have dinner together. The impression that it left in the community that I was somebody worth doing business with. And that led me to the job I have now, which led me to other things and so on. So I encourage, you know, leaders to recognize, you know, what is short-term versus what is long-term. And, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I think most of that stuff is very short-term. And the same way that I think the analogy to social media absolutely happens, right? I mean, yes, you are in everybody's feed within minutes of you saying or deciding on something. But you also disappear from, I mean, that, that thing disappear from their mind as quickly as it went in. Like snowflakes on rain. Yeah, and, and I would challenge you to remember 10 meaningful things that happened this year. Like without doing research, like really what stuck with you, right? And um, you will probably find that what stuck with you isn't those flash in the pan kind of a thing because they don't they don't have a lasting impact uh and and at the end you know people have to live and i think that's probably the most important thing you have to live with the decisions that you made you can lie to the world you can tell a story you can pr your way out of many things you can't do that to yourself right you can't do that to your close friends and to your family when you look in the mirror that's the lasting impact And I think there's lots of discussions about mental health and mental health of entrepreneurs is definitely always being problematic. It has always been true uh, that a very large number, like a vast majority of uh, startup CEOs are clinically depressed. If you actually sit them down and do an assessment, they're clinically depressed and there's good reasons for that. But I think it's gotten worse because of the perception. And again, it's a perception, it's not a reality, that they're constantly being looked at by a larger number of people. When in fact, the vast majority of people really don't care, right? I mean, yeah, they'll read the article, but they'll forget the article as quickly, right? And so um, for people's own mental health, I, I would only advise to... First of all, do as little of that as you need. And, and some of it you do need to do, but do as little as you need and recognize that it is just that, right? It is, it is a tool that you may choose to use or not use. It doesn't reflect on who you are and doesn't reflect on your worth as an individual, whether you do this and you do that, right? And, um, and I think even, you know, I have had the chance of having multiple exits this year. And a lot of discussions I had with the CEOs of those companies, some of which have become significantly wealthy, is, and I'm talking from personal experience, both of my own and watching people close to me, is the money is not the thing. I know many, many, many entrepreneurs that have made a lot of money 
like insane amount of money. But for whatever reason, the product that they were working on, the company that they were working on disappeared, right? Like the buyer bought the company and then three months later decided to shut it down. And I know other entrepreneurs that have not made nearly as much money, but whose product is now everywhere and is used, or at least for a decade was used everywhere and became, nobody knew it was their product. They knew it was their product but it became the thing that everybody uses. And I can tell you the mental health of the second category is an order of magnitude better than the mental health of the first category. Because whenever you've made money without having accomplished something that's in proportion with the money you've made, when you look in the mirror, not in your bank account, but in the mirror, deep inside, you know that I got lucky, I made a bunch of money, but it actually didn't work out. And for your mental health, and and I'm talking from experience, both personally and for people that I know, um, having a little less money, but having truly achieved something along the lines of what we talked about a few minutes ago, of having helped people grow, having developed a product that people use, having helped others advance in life, that is what makes your mental health stronger. And and no amount of bank account can make up for the difference between the two. Wow, Jack, there is so much to unpack here. And I'm finding this fascinating from somebody who is in the position of the VC. Because isn't the VC at the end of the day looking at the bottom line? Yes, look, at the end of the day, our job, right, we have a job, is to take money from pension funds and insurance companies and private family offices invest them into companies and provide a return. But if anybody wakes up in the morning and thinks about that, they're actually not going to be very successful at that, right? Because you have to recognize that we generate those returns for investors by creating value. Right, by creating enterprises in which we have ownership that become valuable. That's the VC model, right? You invest when the company isn't very valuable. And then as the company grows and becomes more and more valuable, you return more than you invested. And so if you take some distance and you say, okay, you know, and, and of course I have my personal bias in there, but if you say, okay, how do I successfully over a long period of time, not a one-time success, but over a long period of time, if you want to have a career in the space, Create value. And so you wake up in the morning not thinking about how you're going to make money because that doesn't actually create that. But you wake up in the morning with how do I create value? How do I have some contribution to creating value? And my experience is the highest level of value creation as a board member, as a mentor, as an advisor is in helping the CEO to be a better CEO, to build a better company, and as a result of that, to create more value. And so when I get up in the morning, and I hope that most people that are in this business wake up the same way, and that's not a perception of the press, obviously, but the good VCs, and I think by and large, most people have good intentions. They don't always succeed, but they have good intention. Get up in the morning and say, What can I do today? What can I do this week to make my current portfolio a better portfolio? What can I talk about with CEO one, two, and three this week 
to address issues, to think about the future, to recognize future challenges, to tackle them, and to make them better CEOs in making those decisions, that's the way that you have the most impact on creating value. And it's very delicate, right? It's, it's a very challenging uh, job to be able to have that kind of an impact because it's very different from what sometimes people think. And I teach about this, you know, in, in some of my webinars, which is that the job of the board is to tell the CEO what to do. That is absolutely not the job of the board. So I want to, I want to talk to you a second. There's this notion that at the end of the day, the, the largest money makers in the world, the big tech are pretty much associated with evil. And you're sort of portraying a different picture where at the end of the day, money can go hand in hand with um, values and, and legacy of a very beautiful sort uh, that you're describing. Right. No, I think, you know, so first of all, I come from an era where, you know, entrepreneurs went thinking about making money. Entrepreneurs were thinking about solving a problem which they thought they could solve. And, you know, I was, I was in a company that went public and we made a ton of money, but I didn't really think about the making money piece until pretty late in the game. I just thought it was cool technology and there was a big problem to be solved and we wanted to solve it. And I think in the current environment, that's been a bit lost. And, you know, this sort of a sense of get rich quick. But I go back to what I was saying just a few minutes ago, right, which is if you get rich quick without delivering value, you're going to be a miserable human being as a person. Um, and so I encourage always entrepreneurs to build value first. And, and you know, they'll, they'll get rich. I'm not worried that they'll get rich. Uh, and they should not be worried that they'll get rich. They're more likely to get rich if they focus on building value than if they focus on getting rich. But to your specific question, um, I think there are several cases of, um, you know, companies that, that were very negative, you know, in their impact on the world. Um, I would challenge that it's probably a small minority. It's a small minority that people talk about a lot, but it's a small minority. Um, I think you would probably agree that Apple has made the world a slightly better place, maybe not a perfect place, but slightly better place. Um, I think when you think of sort of deeper tech companies that the public doesn't necessarily know, um, by and large, you know, they've, they've tried to make the world a better place and they have. Um, I think there's been always um, deviation um, and it's not, I think, specific to um, venture-backed company. I think in every business, um, you always can go back and find people that, you know, were extremely destructive. You know, oil companies, you know, were very destructive. Cigarette yeah, companies. Yeah, I was going to say Marlboro, for example. Right. And, 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 so, um, and so I think, you know, it's just human nature that, that uh, some percentage of people and things that get built are negative. And I think it's important for society to always be on the lookout of what those might be, because they don't always appear to be, right? When I was a kid, you know, the Marlboro Cobo, he was a pretty cool guy. 
right? <laughs> Until people realize that, uh, yeah, um, you know, cigarettes were killing people, right? Um, you know, the the camel logo was pretty cool too, uh, and so you you always have to be using your sense of um, judgment as an individual to. Um, make your own opinion, do the research and say, is this good or is this bad? And it's your job to do the right thing. Uh, but I don't think it's true. Uh, and certainly not true in Israel, I would say, uh, which tends to be more, you know, sort of deep tech focused um, that um, I think the vast majority of, of, you know, what has been created has created value, mostly in the right direction. And I would actually call, uh, if I had any voice, though I don't, I'm sure, I would call on governments to be a lot more um, conversant in tech and being able to put in place the right regulations a lot faster than they usually do. Um, you know, if you look at GDPR, you know, why did GDPR take 15 years to come into existence? And why is the U.S. still not building the equivalent of GDPR, right? There's lots and lots of situations like that where you see the government, and last week it happened in the U.S., you know, bringing a bunch of CEOs and having them be testifying in front of Congress, and you realize that they have no clue, right? They, they totally do not understand how tech works. And I think that's, that's incumbent on, on elected officials to be a lot more knowledgeable, and a lot more proactive, and they'll make mistakes, you know, they'll regulate the wrong way, but then they'll fix it, you know, they'll make it, they'll re-regulate or deregulate and do it the right way. Um, I think it's a role that the government has abdicated, and, and they can't. Um, it must do that. You can't count on the companies to self-regulate, you know, the government has to, you know, represent the the good of the people and regulate business. That's always been true. Um, so hopefully, I, I think, you know, the, the impression is somewhat corrected. Uh, but I think the role of the press uh, on, you know, putting the focus on the gossip part, right? Putting the focus on how much money have people made instead of doing, you know, what is this product doing? And is this making us more secure or is this making us more effective? Or is this making our health better? Um, that's the real story. And I wish that people would spend money researching that. And I think in Israel, there's an element of focus on the founders, which is very unique to Israel. Um, the founders as a group, uh, if you compare to, you know, if you read TechCrunch or, you know, that TechCrunch is necessarily the best Journalists, but by and large, if you look at uh, U.S. press, uh, yeah, the founder name will be mentioned. Uh, what characterizes what's happening in Israel is it's it's sort of a star system, and every time somebody gets financing, you see you know the two or three founders with their black T-shirts, yeah. you know, with a big smile, and it's all about them. Yeah, and make, and saying they did it, even though they they're just now getting the opportunity to to do it. Yeah, but, but even if they did do it, right, and, and some people have done great things, um, at the end, it's about what they built and not about who they are. Right. And, and by the way, if it was about who they are, then spend actually time 
you know, to sort of understand who they are, right? Where they go to school, what are their values and all that, which is not being done either, right? So let's at least go back and put the focus on on the companies. And I, I, I was, you know, doing a seminar last week and we were discussing about um, a phenomenon that's very specific to Israel, which is that the founders collectively tend to manage the company as sort of the founders, which does not happen in the U.S., you know, um, and and you end up in a situation where the companies are not able to grow past a certain stage because a the founders may not be qualified at a given stage to run it. But mostly, as long as you run the company by like a group like that, all the other executives feel like they're not valued, and so your ability to attract top talent, and especially top talent in the U.S. You know, if if the CTO or the VP of engineering or VP product is a founder and has sort of a special class, but the VP sales or the VP marketing who have been hired and are not founders don't belong to that same level, mm-hmm. you can't build a management team that scales. Uh, that eventually will force the company to be sold. And that's what people need to think about is if you cannot build a management team made out of the top people in each and every position, Eventually, that will limit your ability to keep going. And if an offer to sell the company will come, the board will say, hey, look, you know, we just don't have the management team to keep going. We don't have the talent on the executive team that will take this company next level. And people don't necessarily link back to, yes, but that's because you're managing the company as a founding team, as opposed to having a CEO who may or may not be a founder. I much prefer that person to be a founder, but it may not be. Um, that selects the best people for each position. And, and that culture of um, you know, putting the spotlight on the founders is not only detrimental to their mental health, but to the company. And you know, I, wish, I wish it wasn't like that. I don't have much of an influence to make it different. Um, but I think people have to sort of look at themselves and say, is, is this really working? Is this really what we want? And it's for them to make the decision. Yeah. I want to ask you this. We had Rand Fishkin on the podcast, who, um, who, who was the founder of Moz, and he wrote a bestseller called Lost and Founder, uh, where he speaks about VCs, um, especially in the U.S., uh, who are basically investing in a company, diluting the founders, and then giving them a very short term to either become prove, prove that they're potential unicorns or die. So the, the, the startups typically get a very short term in which they get the attention uh, and are empowered by the VC to an extent. And then they, most of them, uh, by statistics, will pretty much die because they don't re- they don't reach these expectations um, and he he at least makes a very convincing argument why VCS for that reason are a very bad idea and now you I'm hearing you talk and you sound like you see the people and you look at the long term and you see the vision and I'm trying to understand where is the balance between what he's saying and what you know and where you stand right I think you know um... Look, venture isn't perfect, and there's certainly bad actors in venture as well. There are funds who actually behave exactly like he says. Um, they believe that companies are either unicorns or they're just not worth backing any further. And so they will 
invest in the company, let it run for a year and a half or two, and then it's either on a crazy good trajectory or forget it. It's true. It's unfortunate. It's not the way I think about the world, right? I think, first of all, you never quite know. And a year and a half into it, you may find that the situation has changed or, you know, several years later, things happen, you know, very differently. Um, if you look as an example at Mellanox, I hope Eyal will accept me sharing this information because I think it's pretty public. But Mellanox went after a piece of the market where every one of their competitor went out of business. And so you could have easily back then said, yeah, it's just the wrong business. Forget it. I just, I just scrap Mellanox. What a tragedy that would have been. Right, right. And so, so, you know, I think taking that that vision may work from a return standpoint in the short term. Um, it certainly doesn't create an environment in which uh, uh, founders will tell other founders, back to that karma discussion we're having, founders will tell other founders, oh, you should take money from those people because they create. Um, and so I think short term, it might work for them. Long term, probably doesn't. Um, but but there are people that act like that, and I don't think it's right. Uh, I I wake up in the morning wanting to build value, and you don't build value in 18 months. Sometimes, you know, it takes for a very long time for companies to be successful. Um, we sold a company for a crazy return, you know, uh, 37 times return this year after 15 years, right? And so it takes time to build value. Yeah, sometimes you can build value overnight, but it's very rare. And often those are not sustainable value. It's very rare that you can build something of value in a short term and have it sustainable. Um, so, you know, I think he may be, you know, referring to some part of the market that behave that way. I don't think it's the majority. I hope it's not. It's only not the way I think about it. Um, and I think, you know, um, it, it's on the founders to do diligence on the VCs the same way that VCs do diligence on the founders. Talk to people, say, you know, how was this person on the board and how patient were they, you know? And when things weren't good, you know, which every company goes through, hey, things weren't good. You know, some of the, I mean, I gave you the example of Millenarx because it's an old story, you can talk about it, but I can talk to you about recent successes of USVPs in Israel where, hey, there were times that we thought this company wasn't gonna make it. Some of the biggest success, right? Um, so, so there's always a bad time and you need to know that people are going to behave well in a bad time. Um, and then I think it's also a matter of, and, and that's one of the things I teach about in my seminar about the CEO recognizing that they, they have to manage their board, right? If one of the things that I teach is if you don't manage the board, the board will manage you. And so the same way that you're managing your team, your VPs, you should manage your board. You should set objectives. You should set expectations. You should have very clear, measurable KPIs. And if you do that, you know, by and large, you have the control in your hands. Um, if you don't do that, then you're putting yourself at the mercy of, you know, what might not be optimal decisions. And one should never think that the board manages the company one should never think that the CEO reports to the board. You know, that is, that is a disaster formula. Uh, yes, the, the board could decide to replace the CEO. And contrary to what people may think, boards hate to do that. You know, uh, I had a, a debate about that recently with somebody. Um, 
if you can fold boards in in the process of CEO replacement, you will always find that the board was too slow in making the decision, should have made the decision, didn't make it. Uh, almost never. Like I don't know of a single case that I can think about, and and I have a lot of data in my hands uh, where I would say, hey, the board fired the CEO and there was a mistake. None. I know lots of cases where the board should have replaced the CEO for the CEO's own good, right? And didn't do so, right? And and I have a recent case, you know, uh, maybe he had recognized himself in in the story, but I won't name names of a CEO, and you know, CEOs tend to eventually always be my friend. And I, I was really feeling terrible. He's he's my friend, and he's suffering. He's clearly suffering in the situation he's in. And for lack of decision, you know, he stayed in that CEO job for way too long, suffering personally, like like the guy was clearly depressed, right? Because he was just not in the right position to lead the company anymore. And the board didn't act on it. And so I think you always have to keep your compass on what is the right thing to do and how do you create value by, you know, putting the right people in the right positions. Um, yeah, and, and unfortunately for this guy that wrote the book, I don't know him and I didn't know the book. Um, he probably, you know, run into the wrong set of people and then hopefully they're a minority. I can't say what percentage they are. They exist for sure. Uh, but hopefully they're not, they're not the normal case. And I, 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 like on the VC side, there's sort of like a conflict, like when, when I speak to entrepreneurs, there's a conflict of interest between the VC and the entrepreneur itself, just because of the the value and growth that maybe he wants to make a, a unicorn that grows, or maybe, you know, like if, for an example, like a checkpoint or a WeWork, as opposed to the VC that has to, has a portfolio of investors that have to make ROI on the money. Right. So I, I understand like, and I totally, uh, I totally back you up. I mean, it's amazing to hear VC saying like the value and product and, and being pro pro acting on the, the growth, but you know, yeah, I, I think I think it's a mistake, right? To uh, to think about it that way. Um, the only case, and it's a very very short discussion, probably a one hour conversation, where there is actually opposing interest between the founders and the CEO, is on deciding at what valuation the VC is going to come in the first time, because right. the second time. We're on the same side. Right. Fair enough. But but it's a very short conversation because, you know, the market is the market and the market is pretty efficient, especially these days. And so you're like, okay, look, what are the options here? And, and you know, and, and I find myself in those discussions, obviously, but the delta between what I think is reasonable or acceptable and what the entrepreneur thinks is reasonable or acceptable is usually in the noise. Yeah, we do the negotiation and I'll go, hey, how about another, you know, $5 million valuation or 1% of, you know, ownership. But it's a very small part of the whole relationship. And in every other situation, the CEO and the VC should be aligned. Now, the one thing that I teach about too, and is very important for every actor in the ecosystem. And it's the responsibility of the CEO to remind the board members is when you are a board member, it does not matter in what seat you sit, founder, USVP, or another VC. 
you have a legal duty to make every decision in such a way that it's in the best interest of all shareholders, not you, not you as USVP, not you as the founder. Your responsibility as a board member is to do what's right for all the shareholders. And whenever a CEO sees a VC, oh, a VC sees a founder, say, well, for me, it would be blah, blah, blah. It's like, hang on, interesting, not relevant. As a board member, you must vote in what is in the interest of all shareholders. And if a VC takes fund dynamics, you know, and makes them superior to the best interest of the company, they've betrayed the company, even from a legal standpoint. Right? And so if somebody says, well, I really need an exit because I'm fundraising for my fund, right? And I need to show good results. And I'm going to use my vote as a board member or my vote as a shareholder to force what I need, but is not in the best interest of the company. That's just plain wrong. It's actually legally wrong, right? So you can always go back and say that you can't do that, right? And, and people, by and large, you know, are morally doing the right thing. And if you remind them that, you know, you have to vote in the best interest of shareholders, then, then they should do so. And it's true of founders too. I've had many cases where founders, you know, sort of thought of themselves as founders and, and it's nice, but as a board member, you have to vote as a board member, not as a founder. And so I think that's sort of the, the best way to protect against what you're talking about. Um, now, of course, people will not always do the right thing and people will be influenced. So in the back of their mind, they think they're not influenced, but they still are. Uh, but there's almost no case where the VCs and the founders should not be aligned because they're all shareholders. They all want to deliver the most value and whatever they think as, as an individual, as a board member, and then you're thinking as a person, not as a VC or founder, what is the best way to create the most shareholder value? I go back to that value creation. Would it be better to keep going or would it be better to sell? Yeah. Right. You take the example of Box. You guys know our company, Box.com, right? Box had an offer to be acquired several years before it went public. And it was a very difficult decision to not take that offer. And Aaron convinced us. I remember the meeting. He convinced us that it was worth to keep going. And he was right. He might have been wrong. But at least he made the argument it was worth going. One thing I want to mention, though, on that subject, and that links a little bit of what we talked about earlier, is it dawned on me recently, this year I had a lot of exits and found myself in a lot of decisions of do we sell the company or do we not? When you abstract yourself from the details, when you abstract yourself from the near-term thinking, the one reason... And pretty much the only reason why a board decides to accept an acquisition offer rather than keep going is always the notion that this team that is currently managing the company could not do better if we let them keep going or wouldn't do better if they kept going. Right? Hmm. And, and, and why is that, right? People say, well, you know, the market was too small. And that's why, you know, it was better to sell. True. That's the detail. But if you abstract yourself, you're essentially saying, 
you did not believe that this team could expand into another market. That's really what you say. Isn't it risk mitigation? At the end of the day, there's so many other... It's always risk mitigation, but it's risk mitigation. You're saying, on a risk-adjusted basis, could I do better? I know what I can do now. You know, I get this offer letter from company XYZ. It's that hundred, whatever number of millions of dollars. That's what I know. And then you go, do I say yes or do I keep going? And you do that on a risk-adjusted basis. You say... Sure, that's $500 million, I know that. Or I could do $2 billion, but with a certain level of risk. Risk adjusted, which one's better? And it always comes down, and it really dawned on me this year, that that risk adjusted that you do is 100% on the team. Which basically means that, you know, what you discussed before, that it's not the founders that are the story, it's the company. But it does, at the end of the day, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's about the people. It is about the people, but if you say the founders, you're essentially making an argument, right, implicit to that, that the team is the founders. And what I'm saying is if the team is the founders, that means that it's a founding team that hasn't been able to build in the management team, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And if they had been able to build an amazing management team, then you might be making a different decision, right? Yes. Like I had a case a long time ago, I won't name the name of the company, Israeli company. and. Um, we had an offer, and I was looking at the executive team in the board meeting, and this was a company that was selling all around the world, and 100% of the management team was Israeli. Right? They hadn't been able to or hadn't decided to build a truly international management team with people in the U.S. and so on. And I was like, we're done. I mean, this team can't can't go any further than that. We would have to essentially replace several key executives, which is a huge risk. You're talking about risk mitigation. It's a huge risk in execution. Will we attract the right people? Would we hire the right people? Would they come on board and so on? And we said, no, you know, this, this is it. This is the best we can do. Right. Which it turns out was a real shame because that company at that time had $25 million in revenue. And the following year, under the company that acquired them without new customers, just on the basis of the customers they already had. They were doing $65 million in revenue. Wow. So what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is it would have been better to wait, right? But but we didn't think on a risk-adjusted basis, which means on a team risk-adjusted basis, it was prudent to wait and to keep going, right? And so I always encourage entrepreneurs and founders, and here I'm talking to the founders' teams, right? And sometimes it's three really great guys that know each other from the army and so on. But recognize that by creating that founder inner circle, you have a certain strength, right? You have the group together can make better decisions. But eventually, you're also limiting your ability to attract top talent for the other positions. And eventually that will force you to make decisions, which may be the decision you want. You may want to sell the company, but you want to have the option of deciding whether you do or you don't. Not be in a situation where you say, look, we just have to, because that's kind of the best we can do, right? And I always, you know, one of the best exits we ever had, again, Israeli company, I won't mention the name. Um, you know, company wasn't for sale. 
some very large US company came and said, we want to buy you. We're like, yeah, we're not for sale. They're like, no, we really want to. And they're like, okay, fine. You know, if you want to do diligence and all that and propose something, go ahead. So that large American company does the diligence and comes back and puts a pretty high number on the table. And we have the board meeting and we're like, no, let's let just keep going. Let, let's just tell them no. And not as a negotiation. It's like, nice meeting you guys. But the answer is no, we're going to keep going. And then they pretty much double the price. Right. And so the fact that we had the option to tell them no produced that amazing outcome. If we didn't have the option to tell them no, we would have taken the first one. Right. And so keeping that optionality that this team can always do better is a very critical element of building a sustainable, valuable company. And if you want to sell, sell, you know, who am I to tell a young entrepreneur that they can't make a life-changing, you know, wealth and decision, but do it from a position that you have the choice, not, not from a position that that's the best you can do. I got to ask you, what made you join a VC in the first place? For me, it's very personal, right? I, I never thought of becoming a VC. I, I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a VC uh, or, or start my career. I didn't even know what a VC was, actually. Uh, the, the first company I was involved with, the first startup, because I was in big companies before that, the first startup I was involved with um, had VCs. And one day we have a dinner, um, you know, a company dinner, and... Um, the founder says, hey, you should talk to this guy. You know, he's a VC, you know, like you want to get to know him. Like, like who's that? What's that? Anyway, it turns out that person was Steve Krause, who is now my partner at USVP. But that's the, that's a funny anecdote. Anyway, and so, um, so I, I was part of this company that was very successful, went public, you know, huge value. Still today, I think they're still, uh, uh, you know, we're not talking more than 20 years. There was a before and after that company in that space. Like there's a whole category that still exists, uh, generates hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Is this the company you mentioned before? No, it's a different one. Okay, yeah. what, which company so, is this? It was called Epic Design Technology. And we're talking really ancient history. And we went public in 94. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure anybody still remembers them. But I know, and the people that were involved in the company, that since then, you know, every system that's being designed is using either that technology in its, you know, current generation, or is using a competitor that uses the same architecture. Like, we know that, right? We don't need to tell anybody. Like, I don't even think that my kids know that. Yeah. But, you know, we know that. I go to bed thinking, hey, I, I, I did that, right? Um, and so um, so I did that that company. And then the second company... Uh, was, you know, very good until the end of dot-com. And then, you know, things were a lot more difficult, but the company succeeded eventually. Um, and despite that very negative article, uh, was sold, you know, successfully in 2004. And USVP was an investor in both. And they're like, you know, hey, why don't you come and hang out here? And the real thing I wanted to do was, and I still do, was, you know, help entrepreneurs with my knowledge, with my experience uh, to build companies. And so I looked at, you know, how do I do that? And, and for me, venture is a platform that lets me do that. You know, I, I get to 
invest the money of our limited partners into companies. But effectively, my job is to build value, and that's what I want to do, right? And that's why I'm in venture, not for you know the making money quickly or you know people think we play golf all day. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> I'm working harder than I ever have. Um, but because that's a great place for me to be able to deploy that knowledge and create value. And, and as we finish this year, you know, I have to tell you, this has been one of the most difficult years of my life. And people that hear me say that, it's like, wait, Chuck, you had six exits this year. How could, how could this be the most difficult year of your life? Yeah, I mean, great success, right? I mean, no doubt. I lost six relationships this year, right? Six people I've worked with and created stuff with, they go on. I mean, they're still my friends, but I don't talk to them every week like I used to. And so there's a real sense of loss. These are startups that just failed? Right, failed. That, that were acquired. Oh, okay. I completely yeah. misunderstood. Okay. Yeah, they were acquired very successfully, very, very successfully. But, you know, I, I can name names, you know, Kareem and Nissan and um, Steve and, you know, now Jonathan are people that I used to talk to on a weekly basis and create and stuff with. And those stories have ended. They've ended well, but they've ended anyway. And so it's been a very bittersweet year for me as we are now at the end of December. I look back and it's like, wow, that was a tough year. Um, and so, you know, I just keep building stuff. And and if you keep that as the uh, as your North Star, everything else takes care of itself. Wow, I'm like revisiting everything I ever thought about VCs now in my mind. This is a... Well, it's not the it's not the VCs; it's the people. If you have a great person in front of wow. a VC, that's a game changer. Wow, Jack, what's your superpower? Um, I don't think I have a superpower. I don't believe in superpowers. Um, I believe in you know hard work and grinding it out. Uh, I, I don't think anybody has you know a magic formula. Um, people have personalities that are worse. What helps you make things work for you? Yeah, just just hard work and trying to do the right thing. I mean, that's what I tell my kids, right? It's like, if you do the right thing 100% of the time, you're ahead of 99% of the people, right? So just just work hard and do the right thing. That's a superpower. <laughs> that is not a superpower. It is, it is. Uh, having, having an internal compass and being approachable and persistent is, is a characteristic. I think everybody has that moral compass. Whether you pay attention to it or not, you may argue, but but everybody has that. It's not a superpower. I think you you just need to uh, yeah, just just do the right thing. And I've seen people in all kinds of walks of life do the right thing, and and in all kinds of ways, you know, sort of get there. Uh, everybody's different. Everybody has a different path. But if you follow those, then then the rest will be good. I can completely understand and envision founders calling you up for advice. Yeah, and by and large, I don't give them advice. You know, that, that may be the superpower. The superpower is to not tell them what I think, is to help them figure out what they think. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yes, we, we just had on the previous uh, episode uh, Intel's leadership coaches, and they were emphasizing exactly that point, that as a coach, you're not supposed to tell the person what to do. You're supposed to help them figure it out. Exactly. Thank you so much. How can people find you? You mentioned the seminar. You can uh, you can find me on the USVP website, you know, from usvp.com. You can just email me from there. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me 
uh, on Twitter, even though I don't tweet much. And the seminars, uh, if you just shoot me an email, otherwise there's a website, which is just my name, jackbenkowski.com. Uh, and there you find the seminars, you can register to them. Uh, I give them every two to three months. Uh, and currently there's two of them, one on go-to-market and one on CEO efficacy and relationship with the board. Thank you so much. Uh, we wish you. you a beautiful 2022 with uh, happy, sad endings like this year. Yeah, and thanks for, for believing in entrepreneurs enough and, uh, you know, helping them succeed. It's always great to have a good person behind that. Thank you. Very good. I'll take that, though. Uh, I'll, I'll drink at the end of the year. I'll think of what you said. Let's wish for more uh, good, bittersweet results. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.